Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week... I'm talking to Alex Hay about his historical novel, The Housekeepers. Alex grew up in Cambridge and Cardiff and has been writing as long as he can remember. He studied history at the University of York and wrote his dissertation on female power at royal courts, combing the archives for every scrap of drama and skullduggery he could find. He's worked in magazine publishing and the charity sector and lives with his husband in London. The Housekeepers is his debut novel and won the Caledonia Novel Award. In this episode, we discuss creating an ensemble cast of characters, how it took a clear idea and a story that felt fun and more him to attract an agent, and how this novel turned him into a mega planner. But before all that, here's Alex with an excerpt from The Housekeepers. Mrs King laid out all the knives on the kitchen table. She didn't do it to frighten Mr Shepherd, although she knew he would be frightened, but just to make the point. She kept good knives. She took excellent care of them. This was her kitchen. They had scrubbed the room to within an inch of its life, as if to prevent contamination. The tabletop was still damp. She could feel the house straining, a mountain of marble and iron and glass, pipes shuddering overhead. She reckoned she had 20 minutes until they threw her out. Madam was awake and on the prowl, up in the vast ivory stillness of the bedroom floor, and they were already late with breakfast. It was important that Mrs King didn't waste time, or endanger anyone else. She didn't care what they did to her, she was past caring about that, but troubles had a way of multiplying, sending out tendrils, catching other people. She moved fast, going from drawer to drawer, checking, rummaging. She was looking for a wrinkle in things, a missing piece, something out of place. But everything was in perfect order. Too perfect, she thought, skin prickling. A shadow fell across the wall. I'll need your keys, please, Mrs King. She could smell Mr Shepherd standing behind her. It was the odour that came off his skin, the fried-up scent of grease and gentleman's musk. Breathe, she told herself. She turned to face him. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Housekeepers. 
Clary, thank you so much for having me. I am beyond thrilled. I've been listening to the podcast since episode one. So this is a very full circle moment. Very exciting. Oh, it's so lovely. I feel like so super embarrassed, but also so happy that you've said that. That's so lovely. Thank you. I'd love if you could start by introducing the housekeepers to us. Tell us what it's all about. Uh, With great pleasure. So the housekeepers is a historical heist and it's set in London in the summer of 1905 and tells the story of Mrs King, who is a very charismatic, sharp-witted, cool-headed housekeeper to one of the grandest mansions in Mayfair. Um, But when she is unfairly dismissed after many years of loyal service, she decides she's going to enact her revenge by carrying out the most audacious robbery that high society has ever seen on the night of the grandest ball of the season. So think big hats, big houses, bad men, brilliant women. And uh, if you cross the Oceans franchise with upstairs, downstairs, then you're halfway there. That is one hell of a pitch delivered <laughs> perfectly. I can tell you've been uh, practising that to a team. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> So I'm interested to know kind of what came first, really, was it? I mean, I know you studied history at university and you've obviously got a real passion for um, historical fiction and that kind of era of writing. But you also, I know, love kind of the fun of the heist. So where did it all begin? Yeah, you're quite right. I was a history student, but that feels like a gazillion years ago. Um, (laughs) And truthfully, the starting point for this book was I'd been itching to write a heist because the plot structure just felt like such a gift to a writer because it's got such clear movements. You've got the section of gathering a team, you unveil a plan, you throw as many obstacles as you can at the gang along the way, and then you try and pull off plenty of surprises and glittering excitement at the end. And all of that just felt like fun. And candidly, I'd written many books over the years, sitting in drawers, that were not very fun. They were pretty (laughs) dour. And I just thought, I really, really want to have a plot structure that has a really good, clear goal um, that can give my protagonist something very uh, straightforward and shiny to aim for, which I think had been a bit of a pitfall in past books of mine, that my protagonists sort of meandered around the story uh, until they sort of gently limped over the finishing line so that was the sort of first um quite um straightforward thought in my mind was let's get a big shiny juicy plot structure going and then secondly I'd always been longing to set a book in the 1900s because it's the most delicious opulent time and I think you know the the brand of the Edwardian period which certainly I had in my mind um of broad-brimmed hats and rolling lawns and um armies of servants um, felt very appealing to use as a setting um, for this type of story. And I'd been reading a book which I absolutely adored called The Lost Mansions of Mayfair, which uh, listed in absolutely exquisite detail um, some of the most opulent and wonderful um, mansions once scattered all over West London. And I just thought, oh, those houses are going to be ideal to set um, a sort of um, big shiny robbery so effectively gluing setting and plot structure together was was the starting point and then it was a case of sort of pondering okay who's my cast and how can I get them up and running mm, I'll touch on that in a second but I just want to go back to you know all those four dour novels that have <laughs> you know haven't seen the light of day yeah were they finished were they unfinished like what 
how do you kind of had you attempted to kind of get to the point where you were sending out novels to agents before or was this your kind of this was the one or what what was the kind of what was the kind of experience there that you had well I mean I have been writing as long as I can remember so there's you know all the um madcap uh gothic novels written in my teens then there's the long hiatus at university where I um, wrote nothing and read nothing um, and then came back to writing in my 20s. And in my late 20s, I guess I got serious about it. So I went on a Curtis Brown creative course. And on that course, I was writing a sort of historical, historical speculative novel, which didn't really go anywhere. Um, but I did send it out to agents and I did get a couple of requests for the full. Um, but I sort of felt that from a genre perspective, it fell between two, two stools and I wasn't really going to be able to get it up and running so I parked it I've moved on to a more straightforward historical novel with a sort of supernatural tint to it and again sent that out to agents and actually got a few more requests for the full that time and it's sort of the classic story the responses started to be a bit warmer so I went okay Mm. you know getting on to something here started another couple of books but abandoned those at the sort of 25 30,000 word mark mainly because I wrote them without plan and they just fell over immediately um, wrote something else which I did finish the first draft of, but thought I don't know this, I don't actually want to send this out. And then in the summer of 2020, sort of lit on the idea of the housekeepers. So I suppose by that point, I'd learned a lot about my own capability or lack thereof in terms of writing. I'd started to get a sense that I needed to be quite clear in the proposition if I wanted to get uh, agent representation, because I was sort of getting closer, but but um not quite over the line. Um, but I also recognise that I just wanted to enjoy the process a bit more and maybe try and write something that felt more organic and more me um, and take everything I'd learned and just really throw everything at it. And that was the, the experience of writing The Housekeepers. Once I lit on that um, plot meet setting idea, I just had that sort of tingle of I am going to love writing this so much. And if I can pull it off, then I think I... I think I could get an agent. So then it was a sort of case of, okay, right, no pressure. Let's let's see if I can make this happen. Mm. The reason I asked that is also because I think from a lot of people's perspective, and we all know that many of us, you know, have loved writing our whole lives and we've worked away on various bits and pieces. But on the outside, it always looks like you've written one book and that's the one you've decided to go with and it's become a success and you've got a book deal and blah, blah, blah often there's way more backstory to it you've written other novels that haven't worked or they have worked but they're not quite right or you have had agent um attention you know I've had guests on the podcast that have had you know seven seven attempts at um submissions and they haven't worked so I think it's it's interesting when we look at kind of what a debut novelist is that there's a lot more work you put into it than just that one novel I know it's fascinating isn't it and I don't know whether you're supposed to admit you've got all these other books sitting <laughs> whether it oh yeah sits. that's just you know if we all do I mean there's probably hundreds of started and not finished things on my computer um that I don't even want to look at <laughs> and and I think that's part of the apprenticeship isn't it you, you've got to go through your hours your years of trying and learning and crafting the process um but I can see that appealing um, idea of being a debut, quote unquote, who doesn't have 
that sort of backlog of books in drawers. Um, and 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 actually, I do know people whose first finished work of fiction did get picked up by an agent and did get published, and and it is absolutely terrific. So it can be done. Um, I am glad actually that wasn't my journey because I think I would, knowing myself, I think I would be so utterly petrified I would not be able to write another word, let alone another book <laughs> ever again. I'm sort of glad I I learned, um, I suppose the stamina I suppose just to keep going and keep sort of churning books out and hoping and praying and and you will know this it's just the sort of um faith you have to have that it's all going to come off in the end um mm. and 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 that's that's sort of what keeps powering you on even on those sort of weekends when you're not leaving the house and the parties you're not going to and the stuff you're not doing because you're just giving up hours and hours and hours of your time um around work and around life and everything else you, you've got to sort of just keep pushing through but but and I I prefer that journey actually I think that's I think that's probably strengthened me as a writer um but yeah it's a, it's a funny one debut doesn't always necessarily capture, mm. capture that pathway yeah definitely so let's touch back on your brilliant cast of characters then your fantastic group of women who uh take part in this heist obviously Mrs King is at the heart of it but I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about how you brought your characters together and how do you kind of created all their different personalities and decided who was going to have what skill to be uh, crucial in this operation? Yeah, well, this is an ensemble cast. It's a pretty big cast. Um, and actually in the first draft, it was even bigger. So, you know, Lord help us if there are too many characters in it at the moment. It would be once <laughs> even worse. Um, I suppose the starting point was picturing this cast of servants sidling out from behind the green bay's door underneath a very elegant staircase in this beautiful mansion in Park Lane and considering what different roles they would have. But you asked a really astute question there, which is what what skills do they each need to have? So obviously a big job like this is going to need to be financed. You're going to need to have somebody who understands the house and its schematics. You're going to have to, in this particular story, have some people with a particularly remarkable skill at the trapeze because it is no mean feat to strip the grandest mansion in Mayfair of all its costly treasures <laughs> on the night of a very large party. Um, so sort of thinking through the practicalities of, of, of what might be required was, was um, I suppose, sort of a quite straightforward process. And then the first draft meant that those characters were actually a little bit thin, sort of did what I told them to do for the sake of the plot. But the emotional motivation of what, what they were doing it for was was perhaps not fully there. And I suppose in the course of rewriting the book, it was a case of trying to peel back their layers and get a bit closer to the bone. So, I mean, on the subject of bones, Mrs. Bone, who is the financial backer of this enterprise, um, is a pretty, um, I say she's bombastic in Bombazine. She's a pretty uh, tough character who is a, a black market entrepreneur who has made a pretty tidy fortune from businesses, both legitimate and not so legitimate. Um, and has a very personal connection to this house on Park Lane and goes incognito into the house to play the lowliest servant in the entire building, which was delicious for me because I could torture Mrs Bone, put her in all sorts of um, degrading and uh, infuriating positions um, while she was seeking and and sourcing information, um, which was quite fun. But actually, in the course of rewriting her and trying to understand what those secret connections and secret dynamics might be and how they might play out, and indeed, as the plot unfolded, how they might send her in 
interesting directions that went off plan. That was all really fun detective work for me as the author. And actually, I would say each of those key characters all had a little bit of of, of that that journey to them. Um, so it was just, a, I suppose, a case of peeling back their layers and then trying to set them up and running on the page and 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 running at each other too, so that I could really maximise the tension um, in the book and and lift the stakes to to give the reader a sense that actually they as a group, while closely united, could equally fall apart at any moment. Mm. And you mentioned that you kind of, one of the appealing aspects of choosing a heist um, story is the structure. And I wondered whether, I mean, you I kind of hinted maybe that you are quite a planner. Um, did this make the kind of construction of your own heist in the novel easier because you had that kind of structure already or did you really have to um, really stretch yourself and your your writing skills to kind of come up with all the stages the twists and you know all the things like that yeah I was a mega 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 planner with this book (laughs) because I really loved the idea and I just thought if I don't plan this to within an inch of its life I'll let myself down and the whole story will fall over so I got out a pretty gargantuan spreadsheet um, and for the geeks among us I was relying on um, good old Save the Cat, um, looking at heist beats. Um, I mapped those onto the spreadsheet and then started setting out the different individual scenes that would sort of align to those chunks of the book um, and brainstormed what's the most exciting, interesting, daredevil thing that could happen at each of these stages. Um, And that meant that actually some of my research was quite planned as well and quite pragmatic. So I would say, for example, right, I think I'm at this point, we need to get everybody out of the house. I'm going to need to have some sort of device that's going to need to make that happen. So my research task is go find bonkers slash exciting Victorian or Edwardian invention that could uh, be sufficiently powerful to get an entire cast of characters to run from a house into the street. And and thus I would go do that particular piece of research. And sometimes I would find the answer and sometimes I wouldn't. And actually, once I built that plan, um, writing the first draft came quite quickly because I'd laid out all those those sort of bare bones. Um, but inevitably, of course, I read back the first draft and it was absolutely full of plot holes. I mean, I had people <laughs> just sort of standing by drain pipes for days at a time, waiting for deliveries. The timeline was completely off. You know, one minute a room was on the ground floor, the next minute it was basically in the attic. It was all over the place. So, so much for planning. And actually some of the things that held together the most in the end probably were just sitting in my head. For example, I never had a map. I never drew one. I sort of felt as though I took a risk. I felt as though I had enough in my mind. I could picture the house strongly enough in my mind to make sure that it was all going to work. And as we were sort of approaching publication, my publishers said, do, do you have the floor plan? Because we'd love to sort of make one for the end papers of the book. And I was like, end papers? How delicious. Yes, please. And then I panicked immediately because I was like, no, I don't have a floor plan. <laughs> and if anyone actually looks at this and then checks the text, what if it's all over the place? So I had to do quite a lot of um, going back over that spreadsheet to work out, OK, where did I say each room was in what order? And how am I going to draw this on a piece of paper to make sure it can all be printed? So this is a, a roundabout way of saying, yes, I planned and planned and planned. And then I didn't plan what I should have done and gave myself quite a lot of pickles um, and then had to rewrite immensely, by the way. So, you know, I sort of wonder whether I needed to do that much uh, on Excel in the first place. <laughs> so now you're basically saying if someone has got a copy of the end papers, don't 
go and check which cross-reference is the text just in case there are any errors that you've made. No, do. Do cross-reference <laughs> and then let me know. I really did my very, very utmost to try and make sure it was all right. And 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 luckily I had, I'd really spent so much time envisioning this house and thinking through the sort of um, gorgeous detail of the rooms, the sweep of the stairs, the positioning of the ballroom, the winter garden, the saloon, the smoking rooms, the oval drawing room, the boiserie, the sight lines to the park. I really had spent a lot of time visualising all of that. And and luckily, a lot of that held firm. I did make a couple of adjustments along the way and sort of moved some walls around, moved some trees around, um, just to help myself out as the, as the author. And, and, and that was the stuff I had to go back and be like, well, hang on, what did I commit or not commit myself to? Um, but yeah, all of all of that sort of designing the heist and designing what was going to need to complicate it that was really fun but also just a massive head scratcher to put together and I was itching always just to dive into just start the draft and but I kept pulling myself back to go no no plan it try your try your best to get it right mm-hmm. I'm sure it did help you in the long run I mean you say a lot a lot changed but I think if you hadn't planned it then you would have it would have can you imagine the work then it would have just been awful yeah, I mean, it would have been a disaster. Yeah, you're quite right. <laughs> you, plot holes would be, uh, you know, plot craters, I think. If, yes. If done that. They would. They would be. They would be. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You talk, when you talk about your research, I can just feel, and and through your writing, I feel like your, your passion for the house and for the era. And I always think this about um, historical fiction writers, like, what is that point then when you think, okay, I've done enough research now, I'm just going to put the books away or put the internet away um, and just go and write. And I know you you mentioned about kind of dipping back in to kind of find the answer to a question, but, you know, how how long do you have to start searching? What if you've, you've done four hours and you haven't found that bit of research? What do you do then? 
I mean, that's a good question. I'm quite tough with myself because I feel like if I'm wasting time, I start to feel quite guilty. And you get that kind of ick feeling of this was an hour or half hour where I could have got my workout up and I've just mm. actually spent the time um, looking at what Mrs. Beaton's advice for cleaning picture frames is. However, sometimes those little nuggets are incredibly useful. So, you know, it's not always wasted. Um, and, you know... I'm, I'm writing in this period because I love that process and love pulling out all those all those delicious details. So I suppose my approach for this book was that I'd read around the era quite a lot already. Um, and some of that uh, detail I'd gathered by osmosis over the years. But I did also recognise that my um, teenage binging on reruns of Upstairs Downstairs was probably not the most robust research I could have done. Um, and particularly once you start scratching at the surface of the 1900s, it doesn't take long for you to see that not all that glitters is gold. And there was gargantuan levels of corruption existing not far beneath the surface. Um, and that was really where I had to do more thoughtful research and reading, particularly on the darker side of the service trade, and to try and really build my own understanding of the risks that were faced by servants the exploitation that was faced by them, particularly by young women in the service trade, um, and think thoughtfully about how to feed that into the plot. Um, so I suppose there was some, some quite big, meaty stuff that felt important to get right. And I suppose then my test was just, do I feel I've read enough that this feels as though it's broadly right for the book? And that's just instinct. Then on a sort of lighter note, um, the fun stuff that was just self-discipline to be like right there are no more examples of hats uh, made in New York and shipped over to London um, with big ribbons that you need to look at for this page so it's time <laughs> to move on the thing that was actually the, the stuff I would always keep going and going on was for food I just oh, love yeah. all that ridiculous big high Victorian Edwardian food all those jellies and bits of tongue which sort of make me feel sick but it's so satisfying to go through mm. all menus and just sort of concoct these absolute feasts um that my characters would would um indulge themselves in so that i could have done forever but um had to had to sort of at some point go right you have enough you've got a word count to hit otherwise this book is never going to get done and you've got to mm. go to work so let's <laughs> go you mentioned as well that kind of having that kind of intuition and that gut feeling was it the same for the book as a whole was there a uh, a moment as you were writing or whether you were I don't know 40k through or 50k through that you were like I've got something special here this is this is working it's feeling good I'm feeling good did you have that moment I'd often heard people say that if you describe the idea to other people and they go oh you know you've got something and I had that from day one so I remember telling my husband that this was what I was thinking of doing he was like that's good actually you should you should do that and then telling a friend and her saying oh I love that that's really good and that was a sort of moment for me a sort of litmus test of people get it and mm. um, I think for me I had that then from day one but the moment I suppose just the moment I started writing maybe chapter three when I have Mrs King my protagonist um, meeting her um, uh, slightly shady um, associates 
I just thought, oh, this is really, really, really joyful to write. I'm really enjoying their dynamics. I'm enjoying her. This is the first really tough protagonist I've written who is just going to slice through both this house and this world. And I can really get on her coattails and just enjoy the ride. Um, and that felt like a real shift for me because, I'd, as I mentioned before, I'd had characters who had that, had that classic problem of just being too passive. So that was a sort of craft change for me that I felt mm. as though I've got a, I've got a protagonist here I can really I can really work with. Um, and then as the as the cast built, I just thought finally I've got people who can make jokes and uh, be fun. And so that that was the that was the moment when I just felt like the story was sort of lifting lifting off for me. But you never know, do you? You sort of just I don't know if you ever have this, but you you have to to get through a first draft tell yourself this is a work of absolute genius and <laughs> yay for me and then you obviously in the next moment tell yourself that it's absolutely diabolical no one's ever going to enjoy it it makes no sense and you don't have the ability to write a complicated plot at all and I definitely am that author like highs and lows yeah all the way through it, every draft it can change you know morning afternoon morning it's yeah, like yeah. this is amazing I'm writing great stuff and then you look at it in the afternoon and you're like what what is this yeah totally totally <laughs> So I know you did the you you did a CBC course mm-hmm. and you were also long listed for the Caledonia Novel Award in 2022. How did these two things kind of boost you as a writer, lift you, um, and give you that kind of confidence in yourself? Well, CBC Curtis Brown Creative that was really transformative for me, um, and I can see uh, the sort of trajectory I went on in terms of how I spent my writing time and how I thought about it I can really see a a shift um, from being on that course so I was on that course back in 2015 and I was just really excited to get on it I mean at at that stage I knew it as the place that Jesse Burton had been Um, i I remember doing my application and just being like, I don't know if I'm going to get on and getting the message actually saying you've been accepted was mega. And I don't think anything has been as scary in the publishing journey at any point as the first time I gave the opening chapters of that book in to be read by the other 14 people in that class. And I remember I was the first person, I think, um, to get feedback um, in our very first session so none of us really knew what the dynamic was going to be like mm. and we were tutored by Erin Kelly who is just oh, wow. phenomenal yeah she's just I mean so so incredibly kind um, and astute and she sort of intuited from that first session what I was trying to do what my style was so that was just an incredible feeling of fellowship with other writers that I really trusted and formed you know genuine friendship and community with and I've heard a lot of people who've been on courses um say that um so I think that was that was really that was really pivotal um and I think what that taught me was that you know this is a business you've got to have a clear pitch you've got to have a clear proposition um and naively I thought I did have those things I was like this is great I'm going to be agented in like five minutes Woo! and of course that did not happen um and I didn't get agented on that book or the next one or the one after that um and that was that was a useful lesson as well that you just have to have resilience and just keep going um so I suppose CBC just sort of made me feel professional um 
and and it also set the goal in my mind because I could see other people on my course as well who were just having phenomenal success mm. and uh, you know it was it was nice actually that I, I never felt envious or jealous of everybody anybody in the class always always super super happy for anybody's success but really motivated by it Com- competitive in like a really I think I hope healthy way so that was all fantastic and then writing competitions I mean again I'd seen people just have absolutely terrific success from them um and I was like oh I want a little bit of that so I entered loads and loads of competitions with loads of you know partial manuscripts fulls over the years um never long listed for anything and I almost didn't enter the housekeepers for the Caledonian Novel Award because I'd entered before and I hadn't I hadn't got through that first hurdle but I thought I'll just give it a go and the sort of primary reason was that the judging agent was Alice Lutchens that year um, and I was I wasn't sure whether she was looking for historical because her bio on the Curtis Brown website at that time I think was ambiguous and I was like oh, I don't quite know if I can <laughs> or not so I'm just going to throw myself in the competition and see what happens um, and I'm so glad I did because you know the Caledonian Novel Award is an amazing award it's really well run it's got a fantastic community around it it's got a really good reputation and being long-listed was just a sort of night and day moment in the whole process for me because suddenly um, you know, the book started getting full requests. It was out on submission to agents anyway, but being able to sort of follow up with everybody um, and sort of share the news that it was on the long list and that I'd started to get full, full manuscript requests just sort of accelerated things so, so much. So I really, you know, I, I really thank that prize um, for just helping to turbocharge things in a way I, I don't think it would have would have done otherwise. Mm. And then, of course, you signed with Alice. Yay. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was an amazing moment. I mean, I don't know about you, um, but for me, being signed by an agent always felt like the biggest door to try and open. Mm. But like if you had somebody who could be your um, business partner in your career, who could give you sage advice and who would fundamentally be the person who could open the critical doors to publishers, that you would just be so much further along the journey. And I'd heard authors over the years say, you know, even talking to friends and family, once you said you were represented, everyone just sort of sits up and takes you seriously. And of course you shouldn't crave that. But if I'm, you know, being totally honest, that that, that felt really important. It's sort of a, um, a validation of everything. So I was really, really happy um, when the Caledonia Novel Award ended that Alice was able to offer me representation and I just I wasn't sure whether she would um and it was a really really special moment because she set out an absolutely phenomenal editorial letter for me saying this is everything I love this is everything I think you need to work on I'm completely straightforward I am no bs at every stage um I don't get this 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 or this from your book and you sort it out and it was fantastic and it was said with love and kindness and also a sense of energy and motivation that she was going to deliver a kind of level of editorial scrutiny um and that was exactly what I was looking for I'd always known I want to have an agent who's editorially hands-on I need it um and yeah that that um lift that Alice's edits gave the book was was I think a key part of why we, we got a deal but we had to work really fast because the competition had just ended. We knew there was some interest or engagement around that. Alice's line to me was absolutely clear. If the book is ready to go, I will take it out. If it's not, I absolutely won't. So it's over to you, because this is a golden opportunity and you cannot mess it up. And you also 
just can't take the book out before it's before it's ready because if you don't get some interest then it's going to be quite hard to sell it later on so she was just very very pragmatic with me at every stage which was brilliant because then I was like right my mission is to write like a loon and so I did and exhausted myself um and, and, and got a couple of round of edits done at high speed with Alice um but I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that care and time she put into just making sure we punch the book up as much as possible mm-hmm. yeah I think I know it, it makes some writers nervous to to work with agents and editors because they feel like you know you just have to say yes to everything and you know it's not your book anymore and people will change things that you don't want to change but I there's nothing I enjoy more than working on something editorially and discussing things and you know really debating things and going well why would this character doing do this and you're defending it and then your editor or your agent is coming back going but it doesn't work this way maybe try this way and that's that's such a great part of the the whole writing process I think anyway I agree I mean I love it I love the debates it was really intellectually engaging and exciting and you know the old truism that someone can tell you what's wrong but only you can find the solution I think is true um, because some suggestions are absolutely sparkling and miraculous and you go of course that's the great the greatest idea I've ever heard and others you just sort of know in your gut well I see why you're suggesting it but it's not quite right how about xyz and I loved that and I think actually I sort of reflecting on it I think I felt quite safe quite quickly with Alice um, I knew that her story instincts were aligned to mine mm. I knew she curated her list quite carefully and I really admired who was on there um, and I felt she was focused on, we want to make sure the prose is polished and clean and lean. But I need the workout right. Uh, I need the structure right. And I need everything to land the way it needs to land. And I really liked that because it just made me sort of lift my skill quite fast. Um, but sort of learn and debate and ask questions of her and, and seek her instincts along the way. So I'm with you. I think, you know, what is better than that? And then, of course, got to do it again with phenomenal editors um, at the publishing house which was again miraculous yeah so you've got your book deal and now I'm dying to talk to you about this aspect of it because uh I mean I know social media isn't the whole experience but judging from your social media you've had an amazing time kind of publicizing your book going and doing proof drops you've done both events already what what has it all been like how have you found that experience as a new author it's been very special and um, I sort of knew what a dreamy debut experience could look and feel like. Because let's be honest, I've been stalking everybody on Twitter for years myself. So I was really, really, really happy when we got the deal. And I was just thrilled to know that there was going to be, or sense that there was going to be a good level of support within Headline for the book. And again, being candid, it's not lost on me that not all books can get that. And you won't get that forever. Um, and if you're lucky enough to um, get another deal in the future, it could be a very different scenario for, for, for all the right reasons, which is that, you know, the publishing house has to really think very carefully about where it's putting its energy. So I felt, you know, hugely excited by all of that. Being totally honest with you, um, I did also go slightly mad. I think last autumn, when we started sending the proofs out to the first early readers, I just got very, very anxious and I didn't get anxious about um, the book being despised or people hating it or bad reviews. I just got anxious about everything else in my life. 
And at the time, I was like, I don't know why I'm such a mess. And of course, now I realise, looking back, I'm like, well, it's probably because it's quite a vulnerable position to put yourself in to send something out into the world. Um, but I couldn't quite correlate the two because I felt really lucky. Um, and that was that was a really interesting lesson that you can get what you've been dreaming of, which is the deal. Um, but then there's the sort of journey that follows that, which is you then have to crack on with doing what you want to be doing, which is writing the next book and improving your craft and trying to be relaxed about the fact that some people will like it, some people won't. Um, and that's okay. And actually, I would say once um, we first, first started getting reviews in, I felt a bit weird about it at first because I got I got some really lovely ones, which were very, very pleasing. And then I got some negative ones, which which knocked me a little bit. But I got over that quite fast, actually. I was just, I, I, because I think I got everything from one to five stars really quite quickly. Um, I sort of saw the whole gamut and therefore was like, right, I don't need to look at these anymore. Um, and that was that was useful, actually. And a couple of um, months ago, I was chatting to another writer and saying, I think I'm in quite a healthy place now where I don't I don't worry too much about those um, reader reviews it, it, from a sort of personal perspective. But I find it really interesting. And I go on and, you know, occasionally scan literally everything and see what I can learn out of it. Um, and I don't quite know what I do with that information at the moment. Let's wait and see. But it doesn't it doesn't, doesn't sort of bruise me in the way that, that, that perhaps I feared it would. So I suppose the whole journey has been just a process of realising that at the end of the day, you're in this because you want to get better at writing and crafting really good stories. And you're still on that journey. And actually, the apprenticeship is not over. And I'm pleased and grateful that this book got a deal and it's out in the world. And I'm so, so happy. I cannot tell you that people have enjoyed it. Um, But I feel like I'm only just beginning and I've got to learn how to do all this again. So... I suppose that's the thought that sort of ended up uppermost in my mind. But, oh, Chloe, it took many months to get there. <laughs> well, at least you had fun while you were doing it, even if yes. it was a slightly mad experience. I think, it, you know, it's it's not a normal, not a normal everyday thing to, you know, you you half feel like a celebrity and then you half just feel like you, you're back at home feeling completely worthless about what you're writing and you're just like, oh. And it's just the two complete opposite worlds, I suppose, that makes it so difficult to deal with. Normally, yeah. I would say, you know, what kind of advice would you, would you give to the next cohort? But I kind of think that you've covered what it's like in, in your experience there of, of being a debut. So I have to ask you, Alex, finally, give us a little tease about what you're working on next. Oh, with great pleasure. So I um, skedaddled off the end of copy edits on the housekeepers, um, which was a one book deal, and was like, oh my God, this wonderful opportunity is going to pass me by. I need to write another book immediately, which means on Monday morning, I started book two, which was way too soon. And I had um, a, sort of a desire in my mind to get the plan going and then write the first draft and happy day, it all happen again. And it was torture for about two months because the plan was a mess. The first draft was cold as anything. And I had to really go back to page one and just start slowly, slowly crafting again and left all my good planning and discipline behind and became a full-blown panzer. <laughs> so we shall see what comes out of that process. But um, I um, have the first pass down of a new book 
that's a standalone set in the same world as the housekeepers but starring a fresh cast and a new dastardly scheme so let us see how it goes that sounds so exciting and and i'm sure you're going to have the best time building your cast of characters again and and kind of coming up with some new brilliant uh women hopefully and some maybe more uh bad men and and all the all the in-between kind of you know uh exciting characters that we'd expect to find in a heist well i'm so looking forward to reading whatever you write next alex and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today i've loved it i have to tell you very quickly before we go i started listening to episode one um when i think i was just sort of hoping and praying i would get an agent and i can really remember the walk i was doing it was at lunch. I had a sort of break from the sort of endless round of Zoom meetings and listening to you um, was a real sort of motivator when I was just trying to see if I could make it over that finish line. And funnily enough, I did the same walk today just before we started chatting and it felt like a really full, full circle moment. So oh, thanks so nice. Chloe for the podcast. I'm a big fan. Always have been. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Alex. That's, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. That was Alex Hay talking about his historical novel, The Housekeepers which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.